Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Psalm 119. Uh, we are looking at the Psalms for the summer, and uh, I'm excited about that. I love the Psalms. I, I kind of swim in the Psalms in my personal Bible reading, and I'm glad and excited to be able to look at these passages with you. Uh, Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem, which means that every verse begins with a particular, cho- particularly chosen uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 20 two stanzas of eight verses each, and in those eight stanzas, each time you see one of the verses, it starts with the Hebrew letter at the beginning. So we're looking at the first eight verses this morning, and so all of them begin with the Hebrew letter Aleph, and they go all the way through to the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav, Um, and let's all say the Hebrew alphabet together. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. and uh, so basically, it's the A to Z of God's word and of God's love for his people as expressed in his word. So let me invite you to stand, if you're willing and able, as we read the first eight verses of Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. If you all want to say it with me, you can. It'd be fine. It's up here, so we're all in the same translation, right? So ESV, we're in the back. We're good? Okay. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, but who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we look at it for just a moment. Uh, Father, we are grateful that we have in our hands an ancient book an ancient book that stood the test of time, not because it was written well by men, but because it was ultimately written by you, by the power of your Holy Spirit speaking through people in the past so that we may know you clearly, so that we may rest assured of your love, of your ways, of your righteousness. And so we pray this morning, Lord Jesus, as we open up your word together, that you would show us who you are, that you would show us who we are, and that we would find... uh, Uh, more clearly what it means to walk before you in this world right now. Would you bless us? Would you meet with us? And Lord, would you bless me? Um, I'm a scattered person with a scattered mind and heart. So I pray that you would rein me in and that you would enable me to hold forth things that are beautiful and lovely and profitable for everyone here. I pray that I would get out of the way and that you would speak through me. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So we're beginning this new series on Psalms, and uh, but we're taking the title for it and the image at the beginning 
uh, from Revelation 3 in the New Testament. And Jesus is writing to a, uh, writing to a variety of churches in, in the early centuries. And uh, he actually says this to the church in Laodicea. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now what's fascinating about that is when we read this as modern people, typically I hear people uh, read that as if Jesus is talking to people who are outside of the church and he's uh, saying, if you will open the door of your heart, I will come in. But when you actually look at this verse in the original context, he's writing to a church. So these are people who profess to be Christians. And Jesus is saying, behold, I, I'm standing outside and I'm knocking for you to let me in. Because the church in Laodicea was a church that was really uh, enamored with the uh, luxuries and the amenities and the wealth of the culture around them. And so Jesus really wasn't functionally in their building with them. And so he's knocking on the door and he's saying, behold, I stand outside of your church and knock for you to let me, uh, knock for you to let me in and I will come in and I will eat with you and you with me. So he's talking to people who profess faith in Jesus. And one of the things that I, I think this is important as we begin to look at the Psalms, and, and I'm going to say it this way, life was always intended to be a table set for two. Life was always intended to be a table set for two. And, and I don't mean that with like you and your significant other or you and your family gathered around. Uh, I mean that in terms of what the Bible says about God creating us in the garden. He created us for a foundational relationship with him, a, a relationship that would serve as the foundation for all of our lives. So he made us. He is directing the, the things that happen in our lives. He provides everything. And so everything that we experience and go through in life is to be experienced with the mindset that he's right here in the middle of it with us. So our lives were intended to be a, a table set for two. And we lost that in Genesis 3, and in the rest of the Bible, we're seeing how we're recovering that. It's not simply how to make sure we go to heaven when we die, but what the Bible is really talking about is how we enter back into a relationship with a holy and righteous God. So in salvation, God is taking a seat back with us at the table, and that's the goal for Christ to come in and to have communion with us, to be with him in heaven, yes, eventually, but to have communion with him here and now in this life. And so that's the goal, is God's presence with us. So life is really about knowing God and communing with God. And I think this is an important topic for us, as we'll see in just a little bit. But what we're talking about is communion with God, and we're going to discuss what it is, uh, why it is important, and how we get it. Can you let's repeat that back? I'm just, we're not going to do that. Okay. So first, what is it? What do we mean by communion with God? Now, some people refer to it today as having a personal relationship with Jesus. And that, that, that's getting at it. Uh, some people may say it's fellowship with God. The Puritans uh, would talk about having communion with God. And I think they're all really getting at the same thing, is a person who comes to faith in Jesus is reconciled to God himself, and it begins a whole new way of living life with God in your midst, in your presence, with you, abiding with you, and you abiding with him, so that you're in a, a close, personal connection with God. So we're not talking about a God hypothesis. Is there a God? Or God theories is what is God really like? We think he's revealed himself in the world. He's really dwelling with us. 
But what we're talking about is God being personally present with us. And we see this in Psalm 119, verse 2, that we read just a little bit ago. Psalm 119, verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Not seek answers, not seek moral absolutes, but they're seeking him, him, him himself. Um, he himself, they seek him. And so by communion with God, we do not simply mean an emotional high, but a real connection with God. And so we're going to talk about this. And, and I, this is a little more structure than I usually give, but I'm going to give you some structure for those of you who are taking notes and want to like follow this up. Um, so I'm going to give you three big point explanations, and under the second one, I'm going to give you three sub-points and explain this. Okay? So walk through this with me. So in order to have a real connection with the true God, you have to have objective union with God in Christ through faith in Jesus. So when a person comes to believe in Jesus, it's not simply joining a club. The Bible says that something supernatural and spiritual is happening as God actually enters into your life and into you in a way that he wasn't there previously. So everyone who is a Christian is united to Christ, meaning that all the benefits that, Christ, uh, that are in Christ become ours. So we're forgiven, we're justified, we are adopted into God's family, which we didn't have before. Uh, we are uh, made heirs of all the promises. And the Holy Spirit is now with those who believe in Jesus to enable them to live a new life. Now, we're going to take some time and just talk about some of these things. What we're talking about now is not, you may experience it or you may not experience it all the time in the same way. But it's true for everybody who's a Christian. A person who is a Christian is united to Jesus whether you feel that at that moment or not. Whether you're in, you feel like I'm in the presence of Jesus or not. This is objectively true for you. Here's an example. Several years ago, I got to go on a mission trip to Ethiopia. And uh, something happened that I, uh, had never happened before. As I left uh, Rebecca's presence for two weeks, two whole weeks, I'm on a different continent. I'm in a different time zone. They didn't have the same kind of ability to connect with people via the internet and those kind of things when I went. So uh, we were completely cut off. I didn't enjoy her presence for two whole weeks. But objectively, we were still married. We still had the bonds of marriage uniting us. So when we come into this, this is, we're talking about union with God through Christ, union with Christ, is we're saying that's true of anybody who's a Christian, even if you aren't feeling it at that moment. Jesus still has you by his grace. He is still holding you by his grace. He his affection for you has not changed one bit, even if your affection for him has waxed and waned quite a bit. So that is set because he, he loves you and your experience of him is not exactly the same as his experience of you. You got that? Okay. Second thing is when we're united to Christ, is we actually enter into a relationship with God in which he is helping us to do things that we could not do on our own. So imagine this, um, it's Father's Day, and so some of you can remember your parents maybe doing this, or you, you doing this with your, your parents, is uh, picking up your little one and holding them close to the basketball goal with their little Nerf ball or the little ball in the hand so that they can actually throw the ball into the hoop because there's no way they could do it from the ground. Even doing the granny shot, you know, it's just kind of a slow arc right in front of them. So you hold them as close as they can to enable them to do something they couldn't on their own. Or when you're at the beach 
and they're little, and you want them to enjoy the waves, right? You, you take them by the hands, and when the waves come, you go, woo, and lift them up over the waves, unless you're a bad parent. But, you know, other than that, <laughs> let that wave wash them in. Take notes, Joe and Timmy. Okay, so don't do that. So you lift up your ch child to enable them to do things they couldn't do on their own. And when we talk about union with Christ, this is what he's saying, is he has given his Holy Spirit to help us to experience and participate in the realities of the blessings that are ours in Christ. He helps us to see what we can't see. He helps us to do what we can't do. He helps us to love and draws our attention to things we might not have noticed and seen otherwise. And that is fantastic. I need that, and so do you. So that's the first thing, is there's an objective nature to it. So I know this feels like I have on my professor cap this morning. We're teaching. We're doing a little teaching. Second is... Uh, when we talk about communion with God, it, it, there is an experience of union in this life with God, a sense of closeness to him. And so there are three things, really, that, uh, uh, and really this came from one of the Puritans writing about this. He said three ways we experience this. He said it was light and life and love. So I'm going to use that as just my three-point outline for just a second, is the, the light part is it has to do with the knowledge of God, being able to see and understand and enter into the truth of God's word. The Bible says that spiritually, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And for those who are in Christ, there are things that make sense that wouldn't have made sense otherwise because the Holy Spirit is with us and we're able to think God's thoughts after him. Have you ever had that moment uh, where you're reading the Bible and something that it seems deeply profound and spiritual all of a sudden pops off the page to you. It's like that word gets really big. It goes into like 35-point font on the page, and you notice that, right? That's the Holy Spirit. That's God enabling you to participate in the mind of Christ, of seeing these things in the Bible. That's God himself instructing and teaching so that you have the mind of Christ. So, God's, uh, and we see this really talked about in this passage, and seven or eight times in just these eight verses, uh, depending on how you count it, uh, he uses seven or eight different words to describe God's word. And one of those words is in the, the first verse where he talks about walking in the law. That's that Hebrew word Torah. And when we think about law, we often think it has to do with uh, the rules and regulations of the Old Testament. But when the Bible uses the word Torah, it can mean that, but it often just means God's self-revelation. He's letting us in. He's letting us into his world to see him. He talks about knowing God's ways and entering into his ways of participating in the things that are important to God, to know them and for us to share in those with him. Uh, when I did campus ministry years ago, there's a guy in Mississippi uh, who was the coordinator for our campus ministry, and everybody said, you knew that he liked you and loved you when he would let you ride around in his, what, Z28 or something? He had this old... Toyota sports car, and when he lets you go on a road trip with him in his car, what was it? What was it? 280 Z, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say it so it's on the camera for other people. So it's a, it was, I, was, I was a Nissan, and it was your, it was Toyota. what was it? A, Toyota. Z, Z. It was a, Rebecca's laughing. She's like, my husband is not a car guy. He's just not. So that's <laughs> good. That's good. Yeah, I can. I, I know all the Hebrew alphabet, though, so that's good. That's good. So. <laughs> 
So the Torah, it's more than simply rules, it's more than simply laws, it's, it's God letting us in and bringing us into the Z and bringing us into his car, bringing us into fellowship with him so that we know the mind and he's having communication with us in this very personal space. So God's self-revelation of who he is, what he's like, uh, who he is, how we relate to him, how we live with him, what he wants for us and what he wants from us and calls for. So we have that. The second thing is, is what the, the Puritans referred to as the life. We have the life of God. And so what that means is we are walking in his ways. We live a new life. Our values are different. Our pursuits are different. And the way that we interact with people becomes different because of who he is and the way he calls us to live. His spirit in us enables us to interact with people differently. So when we talk about the fruit of the spirit, that's God in us to bring us in line with values that we love love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness self-control i want to be that i can't be that but the holy spirit enables me to participate in those things so i find myself at times going i was way more kind in that scenario than i thought i was going to be because of god's spirit so we begin to live uh, a lifestyle or live in a communion with god in a holy and loving way and then the third and this is the one where a lot of us really focus in it is love is experiencing firsthand the love of God for you where you have this sense that when you're reading scripture it's almost like you can audibly hear in your soul God saying those words I love you so the spirit takes the words of scripture and applies them to you so you have the sense God is talking to me now there are times when I hear people say that that aspect of the Christian life is completely just, it's just emotional. And we, we sometimes talk about emotional manip manipulation in the church. And you know what? I've experienced that. Um, I've seen that. But that's not necessarily the case. Is Sometimes we have a real emotional experience of God because God is truly present relationally with us. So a couple of years ago, uh, I, when I did campus ministry, I probably did 60 weddings, something like we've kind of guesstimated that through the years. And there was this one groom uh, where I was standing up at the front. And that's one of the fun things is everybody else has to turn and see the bride coming down. I get, I, I, when you do a wedding, you get to stand and watch the whole thing play out. And so usually I'm kind of watching the bride and watching the groom and seeing how he's going to respond to her. And his name, his, real, his name really was Jason. Uh, sometimes I change the name, but uh, if he's ever listening to this, Jason, it was you. And um, so he sees her, the door's open, she starts in, and there's a bit of a commotion beside me because Jason immediately started blubbering. I'm not talking like, you know, like wiping a tear. It was one of those things like it was a child who's their favorite toy, just like it was, one, it was like slobbers coming down his mouth and tears, and he's kind of like almost buckling at the knee. And so I'm, I'm standing there, and what I was thinking was, get it together, man. But uh, he's standing there, and his bride's coming down the aisle, and then finally he like steps out and meets her, and she's solid as a rock, and he's just like blubbering right there. Now, he was having an emotional experience, clearly. But it was due to a relationship with someone who was giving herself to him completely and totally, right? And so when we talk about this experience that we have, that's, that's what we want is to have the sense of that God loves me. It's what the Bible says and what, the Bible, what communion with God is having an experience of God's very presence with us in life.
Um, then there's a third part. So there's the, the uh, union with Christ, which is objective. Then in this life, there's a communion with God, which is really uh, profound and wonderful, uh, but it's not complete yet. So there's a third that's coming, and that is the full experience of God in heaven. And sometimes uh, old writers would refer to this as the beatific vision of actually being able to see Jesus face to face and being in his very presence. And this is something that Christians long for. I want to see him and have the completion, not to just to see him through eyes of faith, but to see him with eyes of flesh right there. And this is what the Bible promises us. I'm kind of floored when I read through Revelation for a lot of reasons, but one of those is that it holds forth such beautiful pictures of what's going to happen to us when we, at the end, when Jesus comes back to earth. And it says very clearly, we will see his face. Now that's something that in the Old Testament they weren't allowed. So Moses, he's asking to see God's glory and God says, no one can see my face and live. So Moses wanted what we want. I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. I want the full experience of, of being in your presence. And God says, not today. But the Bible says, tomorrow. Someday, someway, tomorrow, we're going to see him face to face. And all the hurts, all, the, all, all of the longings, everything will be completely satisfied, will be completely healed because we'll be back at table, right? A table set for two, me, him, all of us. And there's going to be a great banquet feast, the wedding feast of the lamb. And we'll have that. So that's what communion is, is really getting at. And, and that was almost a preamble to what we're going to talk about for the rest of the summer as we talk. But, um, you know, the question comes up is, why, why is this important for us? And I really do think that Psalm 119 here in these first eight verses is telling us something that's truly important for us about why we need this. So step into this with me. If you've got your Bible, open it and look back at chapter uh, 119, verse 1. He says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in, in the law of God. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And then in verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart. Now, what's an upright heart? Um, well, something that helps us is there's a, it's, it's parallel, it seems, in some ways with Psalm 119, verse 2, where he talks about our whole heart. So here's an image I want you to think about for just a second. When I was little, I got a, a, an inflatable punching bag that had sand in the bottom, you know, so it was weighted at the bottom, but it was inflatable. And I don't remember what was on it, but I think my parents were teaching me to hate it. But, you know, there it is. It's just I'm punching this thing. So when you first get it out of the box and slide it onto the floor, it's not inflated at all. So you have a heavy weight at the bottom, but the rest of it is kind of this uh, plastic raisin that's kind of, you know, complete. There's no oxygen. There's no air or anything in it. So you have to inflate it. But once you get it inflated and it's full, the whole thing is full, it stands upright. And when you punch it, it may go down, but it comes right back up, right? I think this is part of what he's meaning here when he talks about your whole heart and being having an upright heart is to say, I have sought him with my whole heart, so my heart is full. And because my heart is full, no matter what happens, I'm upright. No matter where I'm going, no matter what I'm doing, my heart is upright. I am doing what God calls me to do. I don't need to do the other things because my heart is 
upright. So that means that the, the, the faults and flaws and sins and things, uh, yeah, we may fall into those patterns, but there's a resilience and a strength that's going on within us where we're able to say, no, I don't need that. That's not controlling my life because I am filled. I am full. I am resilient. I am whole. I'm standing upright and I'm facing him. And that's a good place to be. And I think this is part of why this is so important in our culture right now. Uh, because as we're talking about our culture right now, uh, we are basically a culture of plastic raisins on the floor where people are not inflated and they're wanting to be full with something. And so we run after things that we think that's going to fill me. That's going to fill the wind in my sails. That's going to make me be able to flourish. And they just don't. And we give our lives to thing that in the, things that in the long run, we realize this did not fill me. Not at all. So in our culture, we're dealing with this right now, is uh, young people who um, are looking at the work world and they're wanting to back out. Like, I don't want to work that hard for all these years. You know why? Because they hear so many older people who they went into law, they went into um, finance, they went into uh, Hollywood, they went into the music industry, went into all of these things thinking, if I pursue this and get to the very end, guess what? then I will be full, I will be happy, I will be satisfied. And there are lots of people in our culture who've been able to march all the way to the end and get to the pinnacle of success. And they're kind of like speaking back to the younger generations and saying, guess what? I got here and it wasn't fulfilling. So our young people are looking at that saying, it's not here, what is it in? Well, maybe it's in retirement. We'll we'll retire early. We'll We'll get our Winnebago's and our trailers and we'll go live in a van down by the river and it'll be fantastic. And I'll be there for years We'll be happy if we do that. And you know what? They're going to find out that also is a dead end. It's not going to make them happy. So what are they looking for? Something that will fill them. And they're not resilient. I had a a colleague that worked with me years ago, and I won't say her name, um, but she worked with us in campus ministry. And every semester, now she was a professing Christian. She knew the answers to the question, Every semester, she would have a nervous breakdown because she had this sense of all the people that she was letting down. And she thought, I will be whole, I will be upright, I will be filled filled if everyone outside of me looks at me and thinks I'm doing great. If I have the good opinion of everybody around me, then I'll be whole, I'll be full, I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied. And she never was. She kept, she would, for about three years, days she would kind of just drop off the face of everything and we would think we've got to get in touch with her and she would kind of come back but with the same resolve of okay I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to be doing it never worked in our culture right now uh, we have a lot of young people who are struggling with uh, gender identity and it is very easy for us to become angry and frustrated with them it's very easy for us to see this in just a political mindset but we forget we forget that like all of us they're broken and they're entering into the world and they're thinking what will make me whole and just like us we think there's a piece of me missing that if I were to find that if I just found the right job or the right person or the right whatever then I would feel whole they're doing the same thing that we have done in our lives it's just culture has shifted a good bit and they're trying to do it with something else And so what that means is we can be compassionate with people who are struggling with that. Yes, we need to talk about those kinds of things with with people and talk about them culturally. But to love people and recognize, I know what you need. You need the same thing I need. 
You need Jesus in your life. You need to be filled with him. You need to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God in your life. You need that deep recognition. Uh, we all know there's something wrong with us because we're sitting at a table with just one plate. But life was intended to be a table set for two. And when he's not there, we're going to look for something to replace that. So the question becomes, I think, for us, uh, how do we get that? How do we get this? Well, look at Psalm 119, verses 1 to 3 again. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do nothing wrong but walk in his ways. So blessed, this is what he's saying. He's saying blessed are the people who are pursuing a relationship with God. But blessed is sometimes translated as happy. It's, it's really beyond happy. It's a deep sense of wholeness. All is right with me. I have a deep joy and happiness that I'm supposed to feel because the world is as it ought to be and I'm as I ought to be in the world. And so to be blessed is to enjoy the favor of God leading to our ultimate benefit. That's it. I feel blessed, right? Hashtag blessed. I feel blessed in my life. I've got it. But how does somebody like me get that? How does somebody like you get that? Because as we're looking through the, the psalm here, uh, he's, he's pretty clear here. He talks about uh, people who are, I mean, pull it out here. He says in the last verse, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Verse four, I don't have my glasses on. It's not verse five, verse five. Um, he says, then I shall not be put to shame. Now, I don't know how you feel about yourself sometimes, but when I look at myself, I know that I have faults. Um, it's Father's Day. Right? I feel the weight of my failures as a dad. And I feel the weight of my failures as a husband. And I feel the weight of my failures as a, as a son, as a sibling. I feel, I feel the weight of my failures as a friend, uh, as a pastor. And so when I look at Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8, I think it's very possible for us to look at that and say, well, somebody like me has forfeited those things. I don't deserve that. How in the world can I experience this blessing? And the reality is, is we experience this blessing through Christ. It's his merit, not mine. So when we read in Psalm, the, the Sermon on the Mount begins with a very, very important phrase. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the same word, blessed, but Jesus is being very clear that those who blessed are not those who have done everything they're supposed to do, but those who recognize they haven't. And Psalm 32 that we read earlier, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So it's not the person who has merit it's the person who recognizes they, they don't have merit. They go to God forgiveness. He grants it, and then they enter into the promises and the blessings. I enter the blessing not because I've earned it, but I enter the blessings because Jesus has earned it. Right? Jesus would have read this psalm. What would it mean for Jesus to read these first eight verses? Yeah, he walked in the way of the Lord. He knew God's word. He loved it. He sought the Lord but those, that phrase about shame and that phrase about forsaken, that, had, that really would have nothing. If anybody ever earned the blessing and would face no shame or be forsaken, that would be Jesus. 
So how are we supposed to reconcile that? What's he talking about? Because we want to read it as if it's about us first and foremost, but it really is about Jesus first and foremost. He did all the positive things, but what about the shame and the forsaken? Well, it's, at, it's fascinating as you begin to look at the cross of Christ as it's talked about in the New Testament. So in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we read that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. It wasn't shame for what he had done. It was shame on the cross. He had failed in no way. Or how about this, uh, when he talks about, um, not shame, but forsaken. When Jesus is on the cross, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? So the blessings that are being talked about in this passage don't come to us because we were obedient. The blessings in this passage come to us because Jesus was obedient. He was cursed so that we might be blessed. He was wounded so that we might be healed. Uh, he was uh, brought under God's judgment so that we could be justified before, before God. And so the blessings come to us from him. I read a story a while back about a boy who'd been in the foster care system for years. He was a, a, white, a white kid. Um, he was in, a, I don't know, his first series of, of, of many years he was in foster care. Nobody wanted him. So finally, this black family decided that they were going to put him in foster care and take care of him for a bit. And their son, Jock, and Andrew, this white kid, uh, they got to be best friends. And they had not anticipated doing this, but they decided we want to adopt Andrew as our own son. And so they approached Jock and said, would you like him for your brother? He said, absolutely. So the reason that Andrew came into their family and was adopted was because of the love of the brother Jock. And in some ways, yes, the father loved us, but it was Jesus giving himself for us so that we could be brought into the family of God. So what it means is, in the governmental offices of heaven, your name is in the family registry. There's a, imagine there's a tapestry portrait of the whole family and your face and your likeness has been stitched into it. You've been included in that. So Jesus secured, entered, and he deserved the blessing of God. He's the person who walked obediently without faltering. He earned the blessing. So here's what it, how it relates to us. is we don't earn this blessing through our obedience, but we do experience this blessing through our obedience by drawing close to God, by looking at his word, by listening. And it's also by looking at this word blessed and recognizing that he is the source of my blessing. He doesn't provide blessings. Like I see a lot of the hashtag blessed things and it's like they're, they're on the beach, uh, they're on their beach towel, they've got their margarita, the waves are beautiful, the sun's shining. I'm like, that's really beautiful, but I'm not sure that's what the Bible means when it talks about being blessed. Is in the Bible, when, the, when it talks about being blessed of God, it means I've entered into a relationship with him. He himself is the blessing. He's back at the table. The table is now set for two. He's joined me at the table again, and all that is in him, I now have. So God is the greatest joy of our life, and we read this in Jeremiah 29, 13. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Can you say you've done that? I can say I haven't. Not all the time. Sometimes I feel like I have. But there's this strange thing that happens for us 
It's probably happened, may have happened to you. It's happened to me. Is there's a, there are times when you have the sense God is now in this room with me. He's here. And it's palpable. I can sense his presence. You know that moment when you're in a restaurant and you feel, have that sense somebody's looking at you and you look over and they look, you look at each other right in the eyes? There's a sense that if I were to look in the corner of the room right now, God would be staring back at me, right? He's there, spiritually. And sometimes it's incredibly palpable. There is um, an old, uh, from the 17th century, uh, Christian scientist, not, not as a, he was a scientist who was a Christian, um, named Blaise Pascal. Uh, he is credited with uh, being one of the best scientific thinkers ever. But he was also a Christian, and he had this experience with God that he wrote down, you know, right after it took place, just the impressions with words describing what it was like to have this encounter with God. And he took it, and he sewed it in the coat of his jacket that he would wear, so it was with him all the time, which that might be superstitious, I don't know, but he did it. And uh, in the modern world, we just have it tattooed on our back, so walking down the beach, people could see it. So he's... He put it in his uh, jacket lining, and they didn't find it until after he'd passed away. But this is what he wrote, and we're going to put it up on the screen. It says, the year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my hope in your God, my God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I, I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy, I have departed from him. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life, that they know you, the, own, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I left him. I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Have you ever experienced anything like that? It's my hope. It's my hope as we go through psalms together. And as you begin to pray and as you begin to dive more into God's word, that you would have this desire of saying, I seek your face. I want to know more of you. I want to know more of who you are as you've revealed yourself in the world, in the word and in the world, and to ask him to do that. The table was set, not just for one. We've entered a world in which the table was set for two. Let me pray for us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.